Hello, and welcome to another podcast of Redemption Tempe. My name is Greg. I'm one of the pastors here, and I am joined again with by Jim, one of the other pastors. Good to have you, Jim. Thanks, man. Uh, on this podcast. Uh, today, we're doing another thing that we've done here a couple times throughout uh, the Exodus podcast series, and we're hearing an interview that you did with um, Jack DeBartolo. So like we've done in the past, I'm going to ask you a little bit more about who Jack DeBartolo is. But uh, to frame the interview today, uh, we have been in, we're getting towards the end of Exodus here, 25 through 31. And what we see in these chapters are God giving the plans for the sanctuary, the tabernacle, uh, and they're very, very intricate down to the type of wood and the type of um, metal and, uh, and the different types of foods and, and things that should be represented uh, and crafted for this this temple. And what we see really in this is that God is a placemaker. He is, uh, we've seen earlier that that he provided provision. Um, we've seen him, a lot of different facets of him through throughout Exodus. But specifically here, what we're seeing is uh, very intricate attention to detail for a place. Um, so Jim, could you tell us a little bit more about Jack DeBartolo and how he is also uh, expresses the gifts of placemaking um, and then how this interview sort of ties into to where we're at in Exodus. Yeah. Jack has been a part of Redemption Church as a whole uh, for a long time. He is one of the best examples of connecting his faith to his work that I've ever seen. And he is an architect who's thought deeply about the nature of this placemaking God and how God doesn't just care about uh, things and people, but he actually cares about place. He cares about building. He cares about aesthetics. And we see God going into such intricate detail in Exodus. And so we thought it would be good to listen to and hear from someone who is a placemaker who is reflecting the very nature of our placemaking God. So he goes into how his work as an architect connects with the God that he's come to know and love. That's great. Yeah. And Jack does very, very good work. Uh, if you've been to Redemption Gilbert or Redemption Gateway's new campus, uh, Redemption Arcadia, you can see a lot of his work, but you can see his work uh, around the valley. and Yeah. Um, Bicycle House. Yep. Uh, he's done stuff at ASU. Um, he's done a prayer pavilion. Mm-hmm. He's done a, just a lot of some coffee shops. Yeah, and he is very thoughtful in the work that that he does. So I'm excited to hear uh, how this interview went with you guys and and really excited to learn um, what placemaking at an intimate, detailed level looks like. So let's go ahead and listen to that now. So I'm here with Jack DeBartolo, the person probably most responsible for how I see buildings and see places uh, other than the God who gave me eyes. Um, And it is a gift to be able to interview you. Uh, we've been waiting a long time to uh, send out the invite, and uh, now the day has come. Thanks for being on the podcast, Jack. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you. So before we launch in and start asking you all kinds of fun questions, tell us a little bit about yourself. What's the short bio of Jack DeBartolo? Hmm. Well, the story probably has to begin a little bit further back than even me because it, the history of who I am probably um, goes so uh, is so netted and, and interwoven into my generations of the came before me that I have to speak to it. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, being, uh, uh, having a father who's an Italian, uh, who is a son of an immigrant is a very special thing to me. Yeah. And so my grandfather, uh, Jack DeBartolo, uh, the first, 
Uh, he came over to Italy, uh, from Italy to the United States uh, as a teenager, uh, came into New York, uh, went to uh, be a bricklayer in Youngstown, Ohio. Mm. And uh, these guys would um, literally lower themselves uh, from above into these steel mills where they would um, not really cool them down very far, and they would remove the fire brick and replace the brick. And I think the heritage of knowing that from that he went into construction and then into some development and really encouraged his son to be an architect, uh, my dad. And that heritage is so rich and so um, hewn in in a work ethic that I think is very challenging for us today to even relate to that I respect it tremendously and uh, have a great uh, beautiful sign that uh, handmade sign that he made uh, of a house that he sold uh, years and years ago but it's a great reminder of um, the kind of human touch and the craft and the handmade nature of what he did and how it really continues to speak to what I do today so Mm. um so I'm the son of uh, Pat and Jack, uh, who um, I am the third of their three children. Mm. Um, and uh, like I said, my father's a practicing and was a practicing architect um, and uh, was born in Houston, but uh, from the age of three, uh, moved to Tucson, uh, where my father was part of a, a starting or restarting a practice there uh, that he grew to 300 people. Um, and uh, grew up as this uh, kind of kid enjoying the desert and enjoying looking at architecture through the eyes of my father and mm. the other people he knew. Um, went to the University of Arizona for undergrad and MIT for grad school. Uh, and at the end of my uh, undergraduate experience, met uh, Trisha, my wonderful wife and amazing life partner and someone I could never even imagine uh, going through this life without. Um, and uh, we moved to Boston, uh, at the, got married and moved to Boston uh, between the first and second year of grad school. And what a special year to live in Boston together, uh, first year of marriage, uh, and see the world through a whole fresh perspective. Came back to work for Will Bruder uh, here in Phoenix. Uh, and lived in uh, Phoenix, but worked in New River, uh, drove uh, quite a ways, 45 minutes each way to work every day. And uh, working for him uh, was a a really wonderful experience, Uh, the tail end of the Phoenix Central Library and a whitewater rafting facility in Jackson and Mm. amazing buildings, houses and commercial buildings. And after two years of doing that, uh, my father approached me, and at that point he left his 300-person practice and said, I'm investigating starting over hmm. would you be up for it wow and um and long story and a lot of conversations uh, abbreviated uh we decided in 1996 to start DeBartolo architects yeah yeah and and really birthed an idea that said um on the on the premise of the fact that we would take all the knowledge and experience and wisdom of a massive practice mm. uh, 300 person multiple offices really an architecture integrated architecture and engineering firm And we would take that and utilize all the craft and personality and personal commitment that goes into a boutique practice, one where you have two or three people working very closely together with a client. And how could we take the best of both those worlds, blend them together to create a very unique type of practice? And so we did that, both multi-generational and multi-experience coming together 
uh, and formed that practice. And for about 10, 15 years, worked very closely together, um, literally hand in hand uh, on projects where it was very difficult to see where his work stopped and mine started or vice versa. Mm. Um, and, and really co-designed and co-created um, several million dollars worth of architecture uh, all over the country. Uh, we literally had projects in New York and Virginia and Pennsylvania and Arizona and California. And we're able to just literally do this work by answering the phone and mm. responding to clients. And our whole premise was to say we wanted to pursue projects of significance, mm. projects we felt served people who had a purpose and it wasn't just, um, you know, finding a way to pay bills or to make buildings, but really buildings of purpose. Mm-hmm. He was at a purpose point in his life, in mm-hmm. his 60s, and I was at this uh, kind of springboard uh, coming off of a thesis uh, where I really delved into the idea of thinking deeply about architecture and about our experience of place and space and and our place in this world and how our experience, our full sensory experience of life had such a huge impact on our daily routine and our daily experience that architecture must provide more than just shelter. Hmm. And so the marriage of this unique relationship between a a 60-year-old and a 30-year-old to put together a practice uh, was a very exciting and, uh, and energetic, I think for both of us, a very... Uh, rewarding experience. And so really that was the birth of DeBartolo Architects. Yeah. Um, during that time, we, Trish and I had uh, three children uh, and we have, and they're all grown up now. And my youngest is 20 and that's Sam. And then Jack is 21 and Alessia is 24. So everyone's growing up and leaving us uh, and to go explore their own lives mm. and, and the next chapter for them. So, yeah. 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 Well, in the spirit of uh, biography, let me just throw a few rapid-fire questions at you just so that people can get a little snapshot of what makes you who you are. So other than the Bible, what has been the most influential book that has shaped you into who you are? Yeah, most influential is is a challenging question, uh, but when I think of recently influential, um, Uh there's been a book or two that have really uh, spoke to me. Um, One is called Essentialism. Mm, uh, Greg yeah. McEwen wrote that book, and yeah. uh, it's a really interesting book about distilling uh, and simplifying, but not uh, not removing value and meaning, but basically doing less but better. Yeah, and, yeah. and this idea of uh, Dieter Rams talks about this: this idea that we look for ways to. Um, and it's a very non-Western um, thought, which is how can we actually do less but do it at a level that is so beyond that it's far more satisfying than mm. doing more. Yeah. And so um, that's a, an important part. Um, Yohani Palazma, uh, an architectural philosopher, writes uh, quite a bit now that he's in his latter part of his life, and he wrote a book called The Eyes of the Skin, mm. which is an amazingly deep book about thinking about our um, connection between how we draw and how we think about space and how we experience place. And um, those books have been pretty influential yeah. among many others. Yeah, but, yeah. Yeah. What about a relationship that has been formative outside of your family? Yep. And you may hear this frequently here in Arizona because mm. of the people you're connected to. Yeah. Uh, but Tom Schrader has probably been one of the most interesting people uh, mm-hmm. in my life, uh, yeah. influential. And I'm probably a different typology for Tom, Uh, and I'm definitely not uh, his typical circle of friends. Hmm. 
Um, I think he thought of me as a bit of, uh, and, he, and he openly would say, you know, you're my weird uh, artsy architect friend. <laughs> um, and yet I fell so fortunate that I got to spend so much one-on-one time with him yeah. uh, during, uh, you know, almost 10 years ago now when we were doing a lot of work on the Gilbert campus, yeah. getting to sit one-on-one and have breakfast with him after many of his PLs, uh, priority living uh you know, morning breakfast meetings. Um, he, he and I would just go get breakfast together and to get that one-on-one time with him and allow him to just kind of unfold the world according to Tom um, mm. and and kind of get a sense of how he saw things was so insightful and so deep and very different uh, kind of facet of who I am. And so it kind of opened and pushed me spiritually, uh, in my in my depth of my walk and my reading, uh, and just in my pursuit of a very real um, and honest and true faith, that really started to. Uh, it's probably largely because of him that I really started to look at how that faith walk really started to mesh into what I did as a practice, mm. and, and how architecture as a profession could be heavily influenced by. Uh, my passion for the gospel and for Jesus. And so how could those two come together so that they become much more like one blended thing? Yeah, yeah. And, and for those who don't know, Tom Schrader was the founding pastor of East, East Valley Bible Church, and uh, he was a pastor for Redemption Church, and he passed away uh, uh, several months ago. And, uh, you know, I remember having some breakfast with him a uh, few, few months before he passed, and uh, him speaking very fondly of you. So you, you, you were not just his weird uh, architect friend. He was, uh, you were someone he respected deeply. Um, yeah. Wow. I count that huge blessing. Yeah. Um, how about a place? I know that place is very important. What is a physical location, whether it be a building or a neighborhood or something like that that has made you who you are? There are so many places that shape who we are. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's memories and there's houses that you grew up in and things like this. But as an architect, one of the places I find that my mind goes back to and I physically go back to whenever we are in New York, and probably because of the contrast of the type of place it is, hmm. is this wonderful little park called Paley Park hmm. in Manhattan. Hmm. And Paley Park uh, is this pocket park, and it's it's one of the most beautiful spaces because it could have easily been an infill property. Um, it's near the Museum of Modern Art. It's this wonderful pocket where there's relief in the city. Mm. And you can slip into this space between buildings. There's a series of these beautiful trees and a wall of water in the back of the room. In the back of the, I say room, because it's like an outdoor room. And you can sit in this space in these Bratoya chairs and these Saarinen tables, great architects who have... Um, design furniture for this space that has just been so profound in its in its you know it makes me think of this idea of peace in the city or shalom in the Mm -hmm, city it's like mm -hmm. it is one of the most literal manifestations of this idea of creating peace in the middle of the chaos of new york yeah and you can go into this space and amazingly you stop hearing sirens you stop hearing honking the cars the noise all of that fades away and you're in this amazing pocket of of peace hmm. in the chaos of the city and i think for me it's one of the most profound spaces um as an experience hmm. sensory your smell sight 
sound of the water, all of these things are activated by this space. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, let me ask you this. What are, what are some, you, you know, I'm going to go a little off script. I'm going to ask you, usually I ask this question to people, and uh, they have really good answers for it. But I actually want to ask a follow-up to you as someone who might be able to answer this. How does place shape us and form us? I think a lot of times we think about it as the um, backdrop that really doesn't have a lot of meaning as much as the relationships and the words that are being spoken and those sorts of things. But how do the places that we inhabit shape us into who we are? Oh, quite literally. Mm -hmm. Um, We are so influenced by spaces and places in in ways in our psychology and our physiology. Um, We are, you know, this great quote is, we shape our cities and then in turn they shape us. Mm -hmm. Is so true because we spend 90, 95% of our lives inside buildings. Yeah. And whether we're spending that time in architecture or whether we're spending it in uh, just thoughtless spaces of containment and of economy and that was the lowest cost per square foot and that's how we designed it so that we could basically get the highest return on our investment and xyz it all of a sudden very little thought was paid to uh, the qualitative nature of that space Mm -hmm. and that is such a massive detriment to your daily experience Mm -hmm. so i'm a obviously very passionate believer in the fact that space impacts us greatly, that mm-hmm. that we are significantly influenced and probably um, in many ways we that are very difficult to calculate. Yeah. Uh, and they're very difficult for us to uh, fully comprehend how much the walls and the roof and the ceiling and the floor and the shape and the light and the sound and the qualities of the space that surround us when we're in buildings, the level of containment, the level of transparency, how connected it is to the outdoors, how uh, how connected it is to the duration of a day and the, the role of the earth. And are we perceiving those things from the space that we're in? And, and I think we're so impacted by that, yeah. um, that I find that when you sensitize yourself to that, like someone like myself does, then you find your even more negatively affected by space than you want to be. Mm. You go to a restaurant and it ruins your meal because of the environmental sounds or the uh, spatial qualities. And you have to almost turn that off and try not to think about it. But the truth is um, those, those spaces impact us greatly. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. and, and I'm very uh, adamant that in our work, we do everything possible to try to make spaces and places that affect people in a way that lifts them, that elevates their experience, that reconnects them with time and yeah. honesty and reality of who they are in this place, you know? So can you tell us about some of the projects you've worked on and how you have made deliberate decisions in a way that is seeking to love your neighbor? Well, I've been very, very blessed to work on so many projects over the last 20, 23 years um, since we started that practice. It's uh, it's kind of an amazing experience. Um, as I look over the last handful of years, I think that, you know, um, 
probably the most recent um, work is what stands um, most forward in my memory right now. And so, you know, we just finished uh, designing the campus for Redemption Gateway. Mm-hmm. Um, and this idea of using uh, both outdoor and indoor space, what we call negative space, the space between buildings. Mm. We try to use the space between the buildings as important and keep it and elevate it to the same level of value and quality as the interior spaces. Right. So that one would experience both inside and outside relatively equally. Mm. Um, and, and their trust in us, meaning the owner, client, and leadership of Redemption Gateway, trusting us to shape a series of indoor-outdoor courtyards that literally weave the buildings together, allowed us to create an environment that's extremely transparent. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was recently talking to both Luke and Matthew and uh, talking about this idea that the building they were in before was extremely insular, and there was almost no view to the outdoors. And the view that there was, it was all looking into a parking lot. Mm-hmm. And the idea that we could create for them an environment where they're literally connected to trees and landscape and birds and indigenous environments that speak to who we are in Arizona, in this desert, in this place, is really to us one of the most rewarding uh, things to see that now built and a reality. Hmm. That's also, uh, I think for us, that's one of the greatest ways we try to love and care for people is when they experience those places. Hmm. And um, just They've been in functioning in that building now for four weeks, five weeks. And the amount of feedback we've received is so rewarding because it's been nothing. But we love the way the space feels and the way the flow is and that we can walk in the shade. And yet the buildings reflect the environment. And and these are really strong architectural forms and very simple uh, clad buildings, clad in a galvanized metal that reflects the light and the natural environment around them. Um, and people have embraced it and love it and have really uh, spoke about that changing, even the way the church is as a community. Hmm. People are staying there. They're, yeah. they're lingering after church. They're, uh, they're remaining there. And so, you know, but the diversity of our work is probably one of the most rewarding things because in addition to that, we recently finished a, a really high-end auto car club where mm-hmm. guys can take their, and men and women have cars there that are ridiculous value. Mm-hmm. Um, and be in this environment where they can appreciate architecture and the quality and the ingenuity that's gone into the design of their car. Uh, creative work environments here in Phoenix and in Oakland, um, we've been able to design environments for people to work in where um, at Fervor Creative, a uh, local advertising agency, they said, we always wanted to create this kind of space where our staff would just hang out, where they would enjoy just talking and working and being comfortable. And we thought we could do it by ordering clever furniture, getting on the Internet and uh, looking at pictures and, and try to recreate some of those environments. But we never were successful until you basically started over with our entire space, created a new environment for us, and now it really works. Yeah. And so to hear that kind of feedback from your client um, is, is tremendously rewarding. Absolutely. So if you had to be trapped in one building that you've designed and you could never leave for the rest of your life, people would bring you food and stuff, which one would you choose? I don't know if I've designed a building with enough glass to feel comfortable. Um, 
You know, it's interesting that you asked me that question. Hmm. We're uh, we're finishing um, a new studio for ourselves right now. And to a certain degree, that's probably the closest thing to being trapped in one building for a long time. So we bought a 5,000-square-foot warehouse hmm. in downtown Phoenix uh, in, a, in an area that was known for prostitution mm. and known for being probably one of the saddest, darkest spots in Phoenix, mm. uh, right on Van Buren. And we bought this warehouse that was a mechanic shop and a body shop, and we've been readapting it to make it into an open studio. Mm. And people keep asking me, wow, you're really going to add some staff. You're going to grow. Obviously, you bought this big space. And no, we bought a warehouse because we could afford a, a very rundown warehouse, um, but we bought space. And so to me, it's probably about being in a big enough space that our imagination, our creativity has room to breathe. Yeah. So to be in a big room with not a lot of furniture yeah. is one of the reasons we bought this space. Interesting. So we'll be a small studio working in a very big room. Huh. Um, and that's probably one of the most rewarding elements. The second is the fact that while there are more beautiful places for sure and, and, We've designed buildings and houses in places that have spectacular sites, and the mm. views are unbelievable. But probably a little bit like Paley Park in New York, we've created a little pocket park um, in the back of the building. Mm. And where was a loading dock, we turned it into a little, uh, a little garden. Mm. The roll-up door goes away in the morning, and all of a sudden there's this little sunken garden where you can sit on a wall and leaves are blowing off of the tree and we're starting to get a little bit of that experience and we're going to move in here in the next couple of weeks and experience that place on a daily basis but I'm telling you that already it's this probably creating a little bit of that peace in mm. in one of the more depressed areas of Phoenix mm. there's something about that contrast that I think is very delightful is to create something beautiful in the grit and the ugliness of of a pretty harsh urban environment. Mm, mm. So I'm enjoying yeah. that. So if I guess if I have to be trapped somewhere, I think that's where I'm going to be trapped for a while. That's good. That's <laughs> good. You're going to spend a lot of time there. Yeah. So tell, tell me a little bit about the unique philosophy of DeBartolo Architects. So, you know, for us formulating or unfolding our philosophy over the last 20 years has been something about looking back on our work and kind of saying, what about the way we were made? What about the way we were created and the way God put a desire in us to create something? What is it about that that is unique? And, and it seems rather ordinary, but as I talk about it more and more and as we begin to kind of... Um, unfold the the creases of layers and and depth of what we've been developing in our minds over the last 20 25 years i'm realizing it's not as common as as i think uh in my mind i think it is um you know we really um for us it's about looking and paying great attention uh to the world we're in hmm. um and I recently spoke about this in a, in a talk I gave. And after doing some reading, I came back to an old philosophy statement on this idea that um, truth and goodness and beauty are these three amazing aspects that have informed art and culture and architecture for 
hundreds of years, mm-hmm. thousands of years. And, and in a wild way, it kind of goes back to uh, these, this premise, but probably what differentiates us from several others is the fact that we really see that there's a truth that most of us, and when I say most of us, I'm meaning kind of the full world, is not paying much attention to. Mm-hmm. The truth that God created us for a purpose mm-hmm. and that he put so much intentionality into creation and to who we are. And so much of that speaks to the world of design and creativity. Mm. And yet so many designers uh, and architects are unbelievably unaware of God's intentionality in design. Mm. And so I feel that our philosophy is very much um, an outgrowth of an awareness that we've been given that we're here for a purpose and that God has given us uh, a great ability to see and experience his beauty mm-hmm. and then to take that and allow architecture as the means that we get to be a way that we can offer these glimpses into the glory, into the into the grace and the beauty of who God is. Mm-hmm. So we try to do that in little ways through our work. So, you know, on our we, we talk about our philosophy being about site and place, about the proportion of the places that we design, about light and space and structure and material. These are aspects that we distill each of these components and look heavily at them relative to architecture. But when it all comes down to it for us, it's about can we create spaces and places of memory mm. that push people who experience these spaces and places into a higher level of, of, of resonance, of something where they say, you know, this building speaks to me at a level that is beyond material and beyond program and function and place, but it speaks even beyond to the point of memory. I think if a place holds in someone's memory, it goes to that next level of it being a place that is maybe almost profound in their experience. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's that's what we aim for. But I think philosophically, our approach is one uh, that's rooted. In, it's interesting. I've been reading a little bit more of Hemingway lately. And mm-hmm. I love the fact that what he writes about writing, hmm. I can almost replace one or two words in each of his sentences and tell you that's what I believe about architecture. Mm. He talks about it being true and it being honest, and it being simple, and straightforward, and unadorned. And to us, there's a beauty about that, and about mm. it being real. Mm. You know, he said, if I could write one real sentence, I, I wrote this quote down, which I, 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 it's one of my favorite quotes, because to him, he writes, the writer's job is to tell the truth. Mm. And he says, no subject is terrible if the story is true, if the prose is clean and honest, if it affirms the courage and grace under pressure. Mm. And this beauty of what he talks about writing and what I think about architecture is is so parallel Mm. that I believe that as long as the work is true, people talk about style. Um, We don't really understand style. Style is rooted in tradition and in kind of icons that through history people have created to say, well, that makes me feel like it's a a certain type of building or it references to um, a a generation or a 
a formality of government or mm-hmm, something, but mm-hmm. style speaks to all these things that are not really true. Those are all things that have been created. And so to us, we kind of pull back from style and we ask ourselves, what are we really doing? We're really arranging and rearranging materials to respond. Mm. And that's a key word, respond to nature, respond to place, respond to people, mm. respond to purpose and respond to culture. Like that's what we're trying to do. Use the materials that are available to us today and create spaces and places that respond to those things. Yeah. Um, and so for us, it's this kind of discipline of, uh, of reduction. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the Hemingway idea of if you can say it simply and you can say it in a shorter sentence, sentence than you should. Mm. Um, and we try to speak really clearly in our work. Yeah, yeah. So recently I was in Hungary and I was on a walk and the person I was walking with pointed out some buildings uh, that were created in the communist era and he he described the mentality that went into those buildings. These are uh, very, all the buildings are similar. Uh, It was all about the reduction of cost, uh, of sameness and he was talking about the mentality that went behind it that was basically saying that beauty wasn't really an important thing, that the buildings themselves weren't that important. They just had this mere function of protecting people from the elements, that sort of thing. And then we were kind of talking about place, and he, he asked a question. He says, well, why does that matter? Like, and he, he was a, he was a, uh, a believer, um, and he, he says, essentially, why do buildings matter to God? So if someone was coming up to you and saying, why do buildings matter to God? Isn't it about more of relationships and pe- people and, and things, but not places? Places, that's just background noise. That's, it doesn't matter whether it's a nice building or not. Why does that actually matter to God? What would you say? Great comment. Great question. And I think it's a profound thought, and it's probably difficult for me to unfold all the components of what I'm thinking about in my mind when you say that quickly, but I'll try. I think for us, Genesis 2 makes it really clear that God cares about place. Mm -hmm. He made a very clear proclamation. He defined a very specific place, whether it's starting in the garden or whether it's uh, later on to the Israelites and place was key mm-hmm. and God was very instrumental in demarking place hmm. um, boundaries were set and uh, mountain ranges are referred to and roads are very specific and um, the Bible is full of clarity when it comes to place so mm-hmm. we're very uh, convinced that place is key and paramount uh, to God. And even as Jesus uh, talks about and as we read in the Gospels, I mean, place was used instructively. Mm -hmm. Um, And he would use it as teaching. He would teach in a church, or he would teach on the water, or he would teach from a boat, or he would teach in so many ways that were very clear that he was using place as part of the illustration of what he was saying. Right. So we believe strongly that, um, and, and that can be Uh, developed and explored, that's a lengthy topic. Mm -hmm. However, I think for us, 
knowing that we spend in in modern 21st century America, we spend 20, excuse me, we spend 90, 95% of our lives indoors. Mm-hmm. So if place matters, and if we believe that we are affected and impacted by place, and I think we can show you through, you know, um, very simple science mm-hmm. that our bodies and our minds are definitely impacted by the places that we're in, then shaping those places will affect behavior. Mm-hmm. And while ideas affect behavior, I guarantee you, I can take your friend mm-hmm. and I can put your friend in two very different places. Mm-hmm. I can go put your friend in solitary confinement, mm-hmm. in a place without light, right. without view, right. without fresh air. Mm. And I, I am confident that within less than 24 hours, his behavior will change. Mm-hmm. I can take your same friend and I can go take him to a mountaintop where he has infinite view, mm. where he experiences the light and hears the birds and experiences smells and hears, smells moisture, smells what it smells like after a creosote bush gets wet mm-hmm. in the desert, yeah. smells these uh, wonderful uh, tastes flavors and smells flavors and, and, and starts to experience the full sensory experience of life and is doing it from shade and from comfort, from a place where he can be um, fully engaging of the environment around him. At that point, 24 hours later, I would say your friend was heavily, would be heavily experiencing a very radical different experience. Hmm. Um, and I think it's a very privileged point of view to mm-hmm. say that space doesn't really affect us. Hmm. I actually uh, wrote this uh, in a thesis that <laughs> my graduate school thesis wrote that um, Western Americans have become, due to the fact that we spend, of that 90, 95% of the time we spend indoors, 90% of that time is spent in buildings where there was thoughtless attention to detail. Mm. And because of that, I think we have actually numbed our sensitivity to space and how it's impacting us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think if I could get into the mind of a lot of people who are listening now, they're starting to get encouraged, inspired by the words that you said, and they realize that they themselves are stewards of places, whether it be um, their office or uh, their home or their yard, what would be some, some transferable principles that you could bring from architecture into the everyday placemaker? Great, great question. And I think, you know, for us, it's about thinking about the place you're in. Mm-hmm in an active way, Hmm. not just letting the place you're in, not just accepting it for what it is, but saying, is this a true, honest, and real experience of space and place? And what I mean by that is asking yourself, let's start outside. Hmm. Is the environment, the micro environment I've been given, my yard, Hmm. is it a reflection of where I live? Hmm. Or is it a reflection of what I deemed as a man, woman in 21st century America that I went to the nursery and I bought any plants I wanted and I planted them and I'm really frustrated that they're not growing. Hmm. 
how about listening to place? Mm-hmm. Meaning, what grows indigenously here? What grew here long before you were here? Mm-hmm. What did God, based on the latitude and longitude, based on the climate, based on the six inches of annual rainfall, based on all of this, what plants were here naturally? Mm. And create an environment that isn't a kidney bean shape with a brick border and grass and some trees that you remember loving from your East Coast roots, but instead say, what is this place? And what does it feel like? What does it look like? What would it be if I weren't here? Hmm. What if I weren't dominating over landscape and landscape actually were let alone to be what it is? Go out in the desert. Go into areas where man... Uh, man-made places have not already affected that mm-hmm. and go see what natural sonoran desert spaces look like yeah go look at what trees grow in an arroyo uh, go see what trees grow on the hilltop go see how a nurse tree shades a saguaro so that the saguaro can grow and you'll see that almost always there's a nurse tree on the south or west side of a saguaro. And that's there mm. because it's shading that saguaro. And so, like, there's so much to understand about why things are the way they are mm. that then that would start to influence and maybe and change how you even design your own backyard. Mm-hmm. Or think about a room in your house or um, and ask yourself, why did we do this? Mm. Why is this done? Is it just tradition? Are your walls heavily textured because that's a default answer that allows drywallers to not have to worry about the craftsmanship of the space. Mm. But if the walls were smooth and unactivated by any texture, would that actually make you able to perceive the way light falls across the wall Mm. in an easier way? Like, would you actually perceive when that wall is white or when that wall, just because of the environment of the time of day, turns a yellowish white or a bluish white or a greenish white? Mm. Like, why... Do we not create spaces that are impacted and affected by the natural change of the day Mm. or the role of the earth relative to the sun? Are the windows in the space, can you change the way the windows are so that instead of you looking at the window itself, Mm. can you actually design like we do, we create a window that it's not about the window, it's about what you see through the window. Mm. Much like we handle light, we try to not make it about the light fixture, but about the quality of illumination that comes from the light. So Mm. sometimes we'll put the light, if we can, out of sight, and we'll make it so all you perceive is illumination, Mm. but there's no fixture. Yeah, yeah. So it's about, for us, that reduction of the noise. Uh. I believe that so much of what architecture or buildings or this design which is becoming very heavily influenced by uh, images and photos with your phone. And, but so much of it is not about experience. It's about style or window dressing or fashion mm. or um, trend. Right. It's really not about qualitative experience of, of real life. And so for us, it's, it's reducing the noise. Mm. And we spend a lot of our time trying to reduce the noise of stuff yeah, um, and try to make all the systems you need to make a building comfortable, the HVAC, the lighting, the plumbing, and all these elements. We try to make them as little distracting as possible, least amount of distraction, hmm. so that we can really experience place and, and space 
and commune with someone or fellowship with someone or have a great meeting or enjoy a wonderful meal together. But that now it's not in the distraction of all of these components and elements that make up the spaces we're in. So I think those are a couple ways you could begin to think about the space around you. Do you need it? I think, uh, you know, asking yourself, do I need this? Um, and getting rid of it and starting to simplify the space around you and see if you can actually enjoy the environment you're in more because you simplified the number of objects in the space you're in. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I'm wondering if I think a lot of times people will, when they hear the word stewardship and the role of what we're supposed to do in this world, can often be reduced down to what can I do that costs the least amount of money? And that is the highest ethical standard of stewardship. Right. I've heard you challenge that before, and I, I was wondering if you could talk about why you challenge that. I think that's important to reflect on. Yeah, I, I challenge it significantly because I believe that's almost the lowest common denominator mm. of stewardship. Yeah. Um, it's such a knee-jerk reaction to think that good stewardship is spending the least amount. Um, and what it unfortunately tends to equate to is it's usually spending the least amount on the most stuff. Mm. Um, so people buy many things or buy many elements or components or materials they don't need because they felt like, well, I was a really good steward. I bought everything on a sale or I you know, paid half the value of what most people pay for this. Mm. Um, and so I got a lot more. When in actuality, you'd have been far better off had you really evaluated first whether you needed it. And I think this is where even the book that is a, a non-faith-based book of a, this book, Essentialism, there's so many values in this book that talk about this idea that ask yourself whether you need this experience, whether you really need this meeting, whether you need this additional element in your life, this distraction, and determine strategically what's really best. Hmm. And this idea of um, less but better hmm. um, is really, I think, thinking about stewardship differently than a Western American accumulation mentality. Yeah. Um, it's much more of a, um, is it better to actually have a richer experience than it is to have a lot of stuff? Mm-hmm. And the idea of ownership, which I actually believe this generation, the current young generation, is starting to maybe have a heightened sensibility to. That there's this almost idea that instead of just accumulating as much stuff and having garages and storerooms full of things I'll never use, would it be better to spend my money to go experience the world around, to actually mm-hmm. invest that money on experience? That's a little bit of the beginning, in my opinion, of the direction of better stewardship is thinking, how would you invest your money in a way? How can you use the money as a steward in a way that has the greatest impact on your soul, on your memory, on your experience? I mean, think about as a family, think Mm -hmm. about as a father, you've been able to choose many times as a mom and dad, all right, here's how we're going to spend our money. Mm -hmm. Is it always the most economical things that have had the greatest memory value. As you look back on 20, 30 years of raising kids, it probably wasn't all the stuff you got for the great deal that you bought the most stuff for the least amount of money that mm-hmm. really makes who you are as you look back and and kind of look over what are the five most impactful things you did as a family mm-hmm. that you still remember today, 20 years later. Yeah, And I think 
you know, so much of stewardship, so much of sustainability, another word that is heavily abused, hmm. you know, what's most sustainable is, is something that is most rewarding mm-hmm. because then you're going to come back to it. Hmm. It's, it's this idea that we create and we invest our money and we invest our resources and our time and our energy in ways that have the greatest qualitative impact mm-hmm. instead of in ways that we can just be as cost reductive as possible. Yeah, I'm often criticized or challenged by you know, some of our faith-based clients sure. who say, well, we need to build as much space as we can for as little money as possible. Hmm. And we often say, wouldn't it be better, wouldn't you speak louder to your congregation or to your membership or to your uh, supporters if you actually used the money that was given and you said, instead of us spending as little as possible to build as much as we can, we're going to spend as intelligently as possible to give us the greatest experience. Hmm. And we're actually going to invest this money and invest it into our experience, into the quality of our place. And by doing that, we're going to create something that is that does sustain, hmm. that it sustains beyond our generation maybe. I mean, it's very non-Western to mm-hmm. think about a building lasting not for you, not for your kids, but for your grandkids hmm. or for your great-grandchildren. And the idea of um, building a, a vacation house that your great-great-grandchildren could come to and say, my great-great-grandfather built this. He cared enough to build something that sustained his life. That's not Western thinking. That's mm-hmm. not American thinking. Yeah. I mean, you're thinking, of, you know, most Americans are thinking, you know, what am I going to do in the next five minutes? And, and if I'm really long-term, I'm going to think five years out. You right, know? right. But the idea of thinking really distant into what are we doing when we create these disposable buildings, these buildings where it's somebody else's problem when mm. this house I built, which is just for my family, mm-hmm. um, falls down in 20 years because it was all built out of stucco and chicken wire. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know? I mean, let's think about being greater stewards of time mm. and, and of what we make. Okay, so I have two final questions for you. One is about materials uh, and the decisions that you make about the materials you choose to incorporate in the building. Um, why does that matter? Why? Let me kind of even return to that question before of if someone said materials don't really matter to God, well, just choose the cheapest thing to slap up on the wall that gives you the vague idea of something. I've heard you talk about the honesty of materials. Um, yet what goes into your thoughts about the materials you choose, and how does your faith shape that? Well, first of all, if someone says to me, materials don't matter to God, I would just say, then read Exodus hmm. and read about the dis- the very, very explicitly almost grueling specificity of materials and sizes of things of the temple, of the uh, tabernacle. If you want to wonder whether or not um, God cares about details um, and craftsmen and the way things are made and what material they are, the level of specificity is is almost nauseating. It's, mm. it's so detailed. So God definitely has a is very particular um, real quick if I could interject yeah. what do you think is going on there in Exodus why why such specificity I, I think he's telling us through that that material and space and place and and all these things matter why would the walls need to be fabric and the poles need to be 
you know, acacia wood with a bronze tip. And, uh, you know, why is this level of specificity so critical? I think because uh, several things. I think, one, God's trying to get and, and men to appreciate and, uh, and realize that craft counts, hmm. that, that these spaces and places and the demarcation of, of size and geometry and borders and limits and east and west and north and south, all of this matters. Hmm. Um, I, think his, I think it's to speak through the generations and say, I care about what you do, because um, there is this kind of Western thought that it doesn't matter. As long as I'm glorifying God, as long as I'm loving people, and I believe that wholeheartedly. Yeah. But I believe that there, there wouldn't be so much attention paid to the making of space and place in the Bible if it weren't very clear that God has a very clear mindset on the importance this plays um, in our in our lives, mm. in our faith, even in our sacred experiences, like. And, and, and in our daily lives, I mean, the level of intentionality mm. is so clear. Mm. And so for us to live as, as, as faith-believing architects and to think about material, we hold, we, th- we have, I think what I would say is I have great respect for material. Mm. And, and as a creative, I think we believe that it's one of our responsibilities to be rearranging materials to create these spaces uh, and places for for old stories, mm. stories that have been around forever, the story of your life and my life. These aren't, we're not living new lives really per mm-hmm. se, but we're living them in kind of slightly different ways. And so this idea that we get to use material and rearrange this material to create places for people uh, is very profound to us. And mm. so to us, whether it's the economy of using a dimensional lumber to create a space for prayer like we recently did at Redemption Gilbert or whether it's about a rich pair of doors that are made out of cast bronze that when you touch them your hand over time thousands and thousands of hands will shine the bronze Mm. of these doors that have scripture embossed into them Um, or whether it's a really uh, beautiful wall of copper uh, that has been perforated in a way that it's a response to the site that it was on prior to us aggravating that site at a mm. house we designed a, a 60 foot long perforated screen wall that shades from the west light and it's perforated and it the perforations speak to what was there before we showed up mm-hmm. and so to us it's about respecting materials it's about listening to the material and saying, uh, you know, Louis Kahn was a great architect who said, you know, ask the brick, what does it want to be? Mm. And while that might sound really weird to someone who's not an architect, mm-hmm. it's this idea that every material has certain properties. It has physics to it. And those physics and properties want to be used a certain way. Yeah, Steel has a sensitivity to how it's used and concrete and glass and these materials that have genuine trueness to their to how they're used, they want to be used that way. Mm-hmm. And so when you use a material properly and a material that has integrity and you express it and then you allow it to weather or patina and you can see the use of that material, that for us is one of the most um, 
important responsibilities for us as architects. Mm. So, um, and we try to use materials that speak to uh, their making, mm -hmm. their craftsmanship. That's why we don't do a lot of curvilinear architecture. Mm. Um, and that's because materials aren't by nature curvilinear. Mm. We are a, we're a post-war manufactured, we manufacture materials. So we recombine things. We make sheets of steel. We make sheets of plywood, four foot wide by eight foot long. Mm. And most of our buildings are built in this four by eight mentality. We have materials that are milled and manufactured in dimensional sizes. And so for us, it's about saying what's available to us materially mm -hmm. and then how can we arrange and rearrange these materials in a way that whether it's taking very common ordinary materials and arranging them beautifully or whether it's taking rich elegant expensive materials and arranging them in a way that says this is rare this is precious this is special whatever it is we can make beauty out of those things by being true and honest to what those materials are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And let that truth speak through the project. Yeah. So for us, that's where we're not the right architects if you want to build a building that looks like it was 200 years old yeah. and has a tile roof and has stucco walls. Because to us, that was an important period of material history. Mm-hmm. Those were handmade tiles, and they were tile roofs had a response to the manufacturing of a time mm -hmm. when that was how roofs were made. Mm -hmm. That's not how the most efficient use of that material today. Mm -hmm. And today it's just mockery of the past. Mm. And so for us, we want to use materials that have integrity yeah. and we have great respect for that. Yeah. And so we want to read those materials. We want to feel those materials when we walk in a space. We want to smell them. We want to let them contribute to the reality of that space. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, when you say that, it reminds me of the hospitality and restraint that God shows in Genesis of not making everything that would ever be made or every person that would ever be made, but like hid the potential yes. of this goodness in the raw materials of the earth and was waiting for us to discover it. Yes. And it almost seems like to discover it and then to shun it is a disrespectful posture toward God. Yeah. Absolutely. All right, my final question for you. <laughs> All right. If um, I want you to imagine that you could make uh, a building, you, you could devote the next 10 years of your life, the budget is as far as you want to go, and this is for, this is in, in some way to bless, to, to love your great, great, great grandchildren that you will never meet. Tell us what you would do. What would you design? What would be the building that you make for them? I think to devote a, a lifetime to something, uh, it has to be very special. Mm. And the value and the, the meaningfulness of what the building's purpose is would need to be, you know, second to, to nothing. I think for me, to create, to be part of some kind of an ex, a museum, mm. a museum to me that would be uh, something I've never heard anybody talk about would be a museum that takes together two ideas, mm. the ingenuity of man mm. through all of time. Mm -hmm. So take the most ingenious inventions of man mm. parallel to 
the ingenious creations of God. Oh, wow. And to create an environment where maybe it's an indoor-outdoor or it's this uh, experience where there's almost something where, um, you know, the idea that maybe we think of amazing brilliance of man Mm. to develop the camera, to develop microscopes and telescopes and all these optical devices we have, Mm -hmm. Uh, whether it's corrective lenses for glasses or contacts or these amazing inventions and ingenious developments, Mm -hmm. technology and, um, and the history of all that. So to see all that displayed and then to, at the same time, vis-a-vis look at the brilliance and amazing nature of the eye mm-hmm. designed by God yeah. that we can't even get close to replacing mm. or recreating, mm. that the eye has the ability to accept massive contrast in light value and yet still read in one or two foot candles or uh, and, and also handle 50,000-foot candles. I yeah. mean, the idea that the eye can focus miles away and yet focus on something that's inches from your face. Mm. Um, we don't have a device. There's no man-made thing that, can, that is anywhere near as sophisticated as the human eye. Yeah, yeah. Um, a colleague of mine in my office were recently talking, and we were saying, you know, just in, like, f- in, in technology of fabrics and membranes. Hmm. There's amazing inventions going on with, you know, all sites of carbon fibers and new types of technology that create meshes. And uh, we're going to have the kinds of fabric that probably uh, take energy from the sun and use that energy or figure out ways to capture and store and hold that energy, whether it's uh, skin, new innovative skins for buildings or skins that insulate using air and all these kinds of wonderful, ingenious technologies and inventions. So to see a building that could display and exhibit things like that, and at the same time, the skin, mm. the human skin, which uh, grows and repairs itself and has layers and complexities to it, and we still can't replace this. Mm-hmm. We can't re- recreate human skin. Mm-hmm. So I think to spend um, 10, 20 years designing a museum that would start to explore these ideas and point to the glory of God wow. through it, yeah. but also point to the glory of God through the ingenious nature of man's creation, not to not to elevate man, not to lift up man, but to say, God, just like you said in Genesis, you created men and women to have these ingenious ideas. And you gave us, you didn't just give us a dead end, you didn't put us on a dead end path that Mm. we just get to the end and we just hit you gave us a all this amazing potential Mm -hmm. and you gave us so many just while there are very fractions of your attributes this attribute of creation and invention and making and it's created this rich world we live in where people are inventing and thinking and i think i'm fascinated by new ideas and concepts and developments that are happening in technology mm-hmm. or whether it's happening in medicine or whether it's happening in engineering or science, these discoveries, and it's wonderful. And mm-hmm. yet at the same time, it's a fraction of what God's already surrounded us with here on earth. So yeah. to have a kind of museum that would maybe explore all of that, and that to me would speak to three or four generations from now and glory God, glorify God through an experience in a building. That, that is fascinating. 
I hope that happens. <laughs> and um, uh, count me in. I'll be the yeah. first ten dollar investor. We'll get you a ticket. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, thank you so much for your thank time, you. and thank you for your good work and for who you are. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Joe. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Tempe podcast. We believe that all of life is all for Jesus. Redemption is one church in nine local congregations across the state of Arizona. Our vision at Redemption Tempe is to create disciples of Jesus who seek the reconciliation and restoration of Tempe. We would love for you to join us at one of our Sunday services at 9 a.m., 11 a.m., and 6 p.m. each week. You can learn more about us and how to get plugged into the life of our church by downloading our phone app called Redemption Church Tempe or on our website at tempe.redemptionaz.com. And lastly, we would love to hear from you. Please send any questions or feedback you might have about this podcast or our church by emailing tempe at redemptionaz.com. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week.